As we prepare to hear God's word this morning, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, join me if you would in 1 Thessalonians as we continue our journey through this book. This morning we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 11 and 12, a shorter section than we've been usually taking because it's a little bit packed and so I want us to be able to just take some time to consider it today as well as have time to turn our attention to Christ to participate in the Lord's Supper together. So listen as I read this passage of scripture, then we will pray and really dig in to consider it together. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 11. To aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's pray. Lord, as always, whenever we take up and open your word, we do so with a desire that we would hear from you. Lord, we thank you that the word that we have here is not like anything else. It is a living word. It is the very word of God. Lord, I pray that the time that we spend this morning considering it, that you would be pleased to make it very profitable and very clear to each one of us who is here. As we take up this section that gives very practical and very pertinent instruction for our lives, the way that we think and the way that we process and engage in this world, just pray that you would Grant for me to speak your word faithfully and clearly. Enable everyone who's here, Lord, whatever has gone on in, in the challenges of our lives and this week, just grant for this, this time that those distractions could be put out and that our attention could be given to your word. Lord, help us in that area we would ask you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So far as we've taken this section up, the, the church in Thessalonica we know is a church that is undergoing tremendous hardship, hardship and difficulty that is going on and on and on. And, and in the midst of that hardship, kind of even as we've been seeing in the early mornings in 1 Peter, in the midst of suffering and ongoing suffering, there's this continued urging that, that life does not get focused on the problems and the struggles and the sufferings and the shortcomings and the miseries. In the midst of those realities that will happen, even as he said previously, we saw in the last chapter, the suffering we told you we are destined for. Nothing that we face in this life is accidental. It is destined, it is designed, it is God's own purpose for his glory. And so whatever we face, whatever's going on, the, the temptation and the challenge we face is, do I get caught up in what's not right and what's going awry and what's problematic? Or do I realize, regardless of that, because that's always going to maybe be there or be regularly recurring, how am I supposed to be living? The thoughts of who God is and how I ought to be before God 
don't change because of our circumstances. And if you're anything like me, there, there is this natural tendency, and I think that's why the scripture reminds us of this so frequently. Well, we, we like to think if everything is good, then I'll really focus on living for God. But as soon as all, all, all kinds of other things are going, let me attend to this first. Let me get past this. Let me overcome that. And once I do, then I'll get back to living for God and how God would have me be. Is that a healthy outlook? We know that it's not, but it's pretty natural, isn't it? Because the, the, the realities of life can be a struggle. And for everyone here, different measures at different times, different circumstances. There can be the struggles within the, uh, the weaknesses and frailties of our own bodies. There can be the struggle from uh, those close to us in family and friends, be struggles in the workplace, struggles in the world. There's no end to the list of where problems can come from. And even if you could somehow get away from all of those things, and you were isolated and alone on an island and healthy all by yourself, you would still have problems. Because then you would have loneliness. And then you would still inescapably have the struggle with the passions of the flesh that wage war within you. So there's no escaping. The tendency of people is to think that if only this was gone, if only this was settled, then... I would be so on fire for the Lord. And then, wow, I mean, someday I'm gonna, enough of that. The someday I'm gonna, once this is settled, let me finish this. That does not work. One of the beautiful things and, and, and the way that this book dovetails with a lot of what we're seeing in per, First Peter is the section we looked at this morning said, the end is at hand. That is the, the circumstances that we live in. Now, as we considered the difference, the world says the end is at hand, so what did they do? For those who weren't here this morning, they say, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's, we don't want to miss out on anything the world has to offer. Yet the believer, by the grace of God, knows None of the pleasures that the world has to offer compare at all to what God has prepared for those who love him. What God has prepared for those who love him is beyond the scope of our imagination in excellence. The pleasures at his right hand are forevermore. And so the idea that we would be over here and we would say, yeah, I, I just want to get and as much as I can and enjoy it now, it makes no sense. Because it's not really deep and substantial and meaningful. And the difference is, of course, also what? The end is at hand. The world says that. When, when the believer hears the end is at hand, we know this. That means Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. The days to store up my treasures in heaven are growing short. Let me store up those treasures in heaven. And so it actually moves us to greater integrity. It moves us to greater industry. It, it motivates us in ways that the world can't understand. And our minds will go back to so many of those uh, parables that are given in the scriptures, right? The master has entrusted 
certain talents, certain events, certain responsibilities to people. And he's gone away and he's coming back. And then he's going to render to each one according to their deeds. How responsibly they've been with what God has given to them. And so as believers, the thought that the end is at hand is a motivation to not say, well, I'll, I'll put it off. I'll do it later. Let me get through this event. Let me do this. No. It is, the days are short. He is coming. I need to get as much done as possible for his glory, for my good. This is what I want to do. And so this tremendous motivation is, is there. But what's interesting is in that uh, encouragement to love one another and how to live, we have what I've called the primary sense of this message is altered ambitions. Because even though the whole perspective is different as to the end is at hand and how a believer and an unbeliever live, also our ambitions are different than the world's ambitions. And what it says in here, it says in a way that is very... I, almost, I might say, a little bit inaccessible to us. What I mean by that is, it's using figures of speech and language and idioms that are just different than we use. And so, for example, if I was to say to someone, I want you to live quietly, what does that mean? You know, I'm driving in the car, a bunch of noise coming from the back seat. Hey, I want you to live quietly. What does it sound like I want? Shut it. Quiet. Well, well that, because that's the general sense. We don't use quiet in the very vast scope of its semantic senses. Uh, it, it, it carries a different idea, and I want us to get a sense of that as, as we begin to go through. Uh, the idea here... It begins with this, to aspire to live. The, I, the, the concept of aspire is talking about what are your ambitions. Now this is one of the things that always challenges uh, the true believer from the rest of the world. Those who have, by the grace of God, been taken out from the slavery of sin, delivered to the kingdom of his beloved son, granted faith and repentance and life in Christ as a new creation, now zealous for good works. There is a, a complete transformation that's taken place. And we are still a people who have ambitions, but they're not the ambitions of the world. For those uh, who have been doing... Uh, we, the McShane readings, we've recently read through the book of Ecclesiastes. And when you read through it, there's so many statements reminding about all these people who have these different ambitions. One's toil is to make as much money as possible, and he works, and he labors, and he stores it up, and he builds it, and then he dies. And he doesn't know who it's going to, because on some occasions... He didn't have a child. He didn't have a son to pass it on to. So he worked for all those things. Maybe thinking, I'm going to do all of this. And then when I retire. I mean, this is one of the, the tragic things that I've even heard in the Christian context. Right now, 
I'm going to work as hard as I can. I might not find myself at Bible studies. I might not find myself at church frequently. Uh, I, I don't have a lot of time for my family. But I'm going to work and make as much money as possible. And someday, I'm going to retire. And once I retire, I'm going to be at all the church meetings. I'm going to help clean the church. I'm going to be... Yeah. By the time that happens, your family's gone. You don't have an opportunity to build into them anymore. That, that time has passed. And who's to say you're going to make it to that stage? By the time you reach retirement, you might be retired because of a disability. And so the likelihood that you're going to be giving yourself an energy and service. So how do we set our ambitions? And this is the simple way that we as believers learn to do this. Remember, we have, by the grace of God, we learn not to lean on our own understanding. But in all our ways to acknowledge him and he will direct our path. Our desire is that he would direct our path through the study of scriptures that we have that renewing of our minds. And so with regard to what our ambitions ought to be, we don't look within ourselves. The world says that. What do you really want to do in life? What's your dream? And then they'll go on to say, if you dream it, and you believe it, and you work hard enough, you can achieve anything, right? I mean, that's one of the things people want to tell new college graduates, right? If you know, the world is there, you can do anything you set your mind to. I could introduce you to a fair number of adults who would dare tell you, no, you cannot do anything you set your mind to. There is a great limit to the number of things that you can necessarily do. I mean, I'm going to boldly say there's not a one of you here who's ever going to set a world record in 100 meters at the Olympics. Set your mind to it all you want to. Believe it all you want to. Dream you want to. It's not going to happen. Because it's outside of your and my capacity and ability. It's just not going to happen. So... What we do is instead of looking at what others have and say, I want that, how did they get there? We do something very simple. We open the word of God and say, what does the scripture say ought to be my ambition? What ought to be my aim? Now, with regard to the idea of ambition, the scriptures also give warnings. And we'll start with those warnings for altered ambitions. In Philippians 2 Verse 3 to 5, it says this, do nothing from selfish ambition. Now, the, the fun thing here is selfish ambition. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to do it from selfish ambition, just ambition. Well, this actually is not two words in the original. It is a single word, and I would dare say most people's ambitions Earthly ambitions are for whose benefit? Yeah, without a doubt, they are self-serving, self-directed. They often begin with the, I want. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, if I was to say as a result of that, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. And you were to pull out a book 
and make a ledger column of all the things you can do for selfish ambition. How long would that list be? None. Do how much? Nothing. Now, that is, that, that's a challenge because that's calling us to process our motives in even what we're doing. You got to understand this. It is possible for men and women to seemingly do godly things for their own gain and for themselves. The scribes and Pharisees in the days of Christ, what was the scripture saying? One of the things that's repeated in the Sermon on the Mount is, beware of those who practice their righteousness to be seen by others, for they have received their reward. Beware of those who, who go around for the greetings in the marketplaces and like to be held in high esteem and high regard. Beware of those. So, so there would be a degree in which the Pharisees would live very disciplined lives according to the, requi the requirements of Old Covenant law. But why were they doing it? For the glory of God? For the love of God? To be a good example to the, their fellow people? No, they were doing it so that they would be impressive. They would be held in high regard. They were doing it for their own pride and conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. See, that's the opposite of Selfish ambition. Count others more important than yourself. Now listen, in most expressions of ambition, are others more important than yourself? Hmm. In most express, earthly expressions of ambition, you claw your way to the top. If you have to kick somebody to get, to, to get above him, you do that. You know, if you have to spread rumors so that they don't get that next promotion and you do, you do that. You do whatever it takes so that you get where you want to go. That's not putting others above yourself. That's self-interest, uh, selfish ambition. The idea of this is it's those who desire, strive for, are fond of, and love honor. And the perfect example in Philippians there of not living for self was Christ. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. The interest of others. Christ had at all times, and we've seen it, the interest of his Father above everything. He, at every moment, he did exactly what was pleasing in the Father's sight. He was obedient even to death, death on a cross. We also have in uh, James chapter, four, chapter 3, verse 14, th these words. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This wisdom does not come from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Such strong language. The idea, again, of self-ambition is self-serving, self-seeking. 
It's all about me. And we live in a world that actually prides on that. E even promotes it. Some of the most powerful and repeated marketing programs that the world is involved with is let you be you. You deserve this. You can do whatever you want. You pursue your own interests. You pursue your own desires. Put you first. And you see it more and more. This is such a dangerous idea. And by the grace of God, we do not do this. What we're going to see uh, in a moment, we are told to aspire to live quietly. But beyond that, in Romans chapter 15, verse 20, it says this. We have an exemplar ambition indicated by the Apostle Paul. He says this, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on somebody else's foundation. So he wants to preach the gospel and has a passion to get the gospel to those who have not yet heard it. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. To make Christ and his salvation and his life and his death in sacrifice and his resurrection. To make that known that there is no hope. There is no salvation. There is no forgiveness of sin. There is no being made right and acceptable with God except through Jesus. And we got to make that known because if people don't come to know that, there's no hope. The end is at hand. Judgment is coming. And the only way that judgment does not send you to the eternal wrath of God is if you, by faith, have laid hold of Christ. That grace of God so operative, so operates to bring people into a saving faith in the proclamation of the gospel. And so we make it our aim to make it known. I know far too many dear and sweet believers who think that's the job of professionals. It's not. That's the job of believers. And here's one of the sad things. If you were to, well, this morning, because if now I told you make a list of your ambitions, you would probably write on there, make the gospel known. But if I asked you this morning, make a list of some of your ambitions for this next six months, this next year, I fear many of us wouldn't think of spiritual things. Wouldn't think of eternal things. There is nothing more significant than that we can do in this life that's allotted to us than proclaim Christ. And yet, for so many of us, that secondary, uncomfortable, poses a problem. Oh, may God stir us up. Not only that, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says this. So he's got this ambition to preach this gospel. He says, whether at home or away, we make it our aim. And here's part of the problem, at least in, in, in the ESV, though I like this translation. Uh, here, in our passage, it says aspire. The other verse that I just read said ambition. This one says aim. 
So you've got aspire, ambition, and aim, but it's all the same word in the Greek. And so we often don't put those thoughts together. It'd be nice if they were helpful to us by using the same word frequently so we could, ah, that's the connection. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to what? Please him. Now I have to add this since we are reading this verse. To understand it in its context, this is not a statement in this context of a, a new wife. I make it my aim to please him. No, no, no. What's this context? I make it my aim to please him. To live a life pleasing to God. So the goal is that whatever I'm going to do, Whatever I'm going to undertake, whatever I'm going to be involved in, whatever I'm going to be saying, I want it to please God. And if, if, if what I'm going to do is not going to please Him, yeah, not going to do it. And, and, the, and I, it gets concerning sometimes when, when people try to say, well, or they, they try to ferret out, look, um, can I make a list of neutral things, you know? They don't displease him, but they're not overtly pleased. Can I, can I just kind of make a list of neutral things and, and, and stick to that? Well, first of all, even the desire to make a list of neutral things means you're missing the point. Because what you're trying to say is, what can I do that won't displease him? The passage says the ambition is what? To please him. So the only reason maybe to make a neutral list is to say, I don't want to do these neutral things because they're not the ones that are pleasing to him. If there is a neutral list, remember the scripture says that whether we eat or drink, we're to do everything to the glory of God. And so uh, I wonder if, when we play this three-category game, we're being right. Everything needs to be taken with thankfulness to God, with thought of God, with a desire that we might please Him. These are tremendous ambitions that I pray God will stir up in us. And then thirdly, We'll see this as we move on to the next one. Aspire to live a quiet life. So preach the gospel, please him in everything. Aspire to live a quiet life. Now, what is that? That's, that's the one that's probably the most confusing, and that's the one that's in our passage today, so we're going to begin to unfold that. Now, let me help you out a little bit. Seeing this word quiet used in a few different places in the scriptures, this exact Greek word, at times it's translated silent, at times it's translated rest. At times it's translated at peace. But let me share with you a verse that I think will help to unpack how this word is used. Acts chapter 11 verse 18 says this. Now this is where Peter has gone back to Jerusalem. As Peter is in Jerusalem, he has told all of the Jews there about how God has saved the Gentiles, how he's given them the same gift, how he's included them together in, 
And, and because along the way, you had these uncomfortable circumstances. If you read in Acts chapter 10, the circumcised who were with Peter were themselves very surprised. So God has accepted them too. God has given them the same gift that he's given us. God has made no difference between the Gentile and the Jew. He has granted the same spirit, the same faith, indeed brought them into the same new covenant that's in the blood of Christ. That's a shocking idea. That, that's, in that age... That is a, a tremendous notion. We live it with, with some localized senses and expressions of, of racism. You know, we hear oftentimes these days on the news about this and that sort of racist remark, racist act. Whoa, I, I'm telling you, the, the difference in terms of animosity, disdain, separation, sense of superiority that the Jews harbored to the Gentiles was far more than anything that we've got going on. And they had to understand God has given them the same thing. He has welcomed them. He has drawn them. Christ gave himself for even his sheep among that flock as well. And this is what it says. In uh, Acts eleven eighteen, when they heard these things, they fell silent and glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now here's something. They fell silent and glorified God, saying, now, this is a little bit confusing because this is a speaking silence. It, right? It's a verbalized, in the, in the silence, they are saying, because it's not simply the idea of absence of sound. What it means is, all of the sense of contention, all of the sense of resistance, all of the sense of self-promotion, they put that all aside. Stopped with their own thoughts. Stopped with their own ways. And did what? Acquiesced to God's way. He has granted repentance that leads to life to the Gentiles. If he's done it, then we accept it. And it's that same kind of thing that he's urging them. Look, you've been destined to suffering. Accept it. Don't face it with grumbling. Don't, don't face it with murmuring. Accept it. You know that God is the one who's in control of all of Living quietly isn't a silence. It, it's that no longer am, am I in this, this rush and self-serving turmoil. But I'm going to see the circumstances God has put me in. And I'm going to see how in those circumstances I can be faithful. In, in Acts 21, 14, it says this. And since he would not be persuaded, this is where Paul is going to Jerusalem. And people were telling him, don't go, you're going to be arrested. Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased, same word, and said. So we fell silent 
and said. No, no, no. It's we stopped fighting against him. We stopped trying to, to push our own agenda on him. And we said, what did they say? Let the Lord's will be done. That's the idea. To live quietly is to live a life where you have ceased from self-promotion. You have ceased from setting your own agenda. And you are looking to, what is the will of God? How will he use me in my life? Where would he have me serve? It's not about making a name for myself. It's about wherever he puts me, living in such a way that his name is glorified through me. I mean, we, we know that... Uh, the, the strength of that terminology, and we'll, we'll see a little bit more of that in a moment. But this idea of, of live quietly is, is not with silence. There is speaking, there is engagement, there is involvement, but it is, it is no longer the anguish and turmoil of my own self, my own way of thinking, my own desires, my own sense of entitlement. All that pushed aside. And say, I am where I am. By God's design. And I will, I will be where he has me for his name. I know what he would have me do in this situation. And so, so there, there's, we see something in John chapter 30 verse 30. Many of us will know that passage. That is where uh, the disciples of John come back to John and they say to him, more people are going to be baptized by Jesus and his disciples than are coming to you. And what, is, what does he say? John says, he must increase and I must decrease. Now that sounds like the opposite of ambition. Wrong. The ambition of John was to serve for the increase of Christ. Which is why when Christ came to him, what did he do? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Here is the one whose, whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. <laughs> and so, so the idea of quietness uh, doesn't mean just silence and laziness. It means the, the, uh, sort of a quieting and a ceasing of that selfish ambition and self-serving and a transition in all of that where now it is all about God. Indeed, it says this, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2, regarding us as believers, so as to live the rest of our lives, the rest of the time, in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So we're going to live the rest of the time for whose will? God's. That's a quiet life. That is a loud, quiet life. What is it loudly declaring? He is more valuable than me. He is more worthy than anything. His kingdom is more important than the things of this earth. Even as he says, we continue in obedience, we continue in service, we, we let our light so shine before men that they will see our good deeds and what? Glorify our Father who is in heaven. So we've made it. That's, that's the quietness. It's not the drawing attention to ourselves. You know, it, the same idea. Jesus, 
as a sheep was silent before his shearers. Well, Jesus wasn't technically silent. He did some speaking to Pilate. We have the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. So he wasn't technically silent, but he was not promoting a sense of entitlement. He was not promoting a sense of, this is unjust, how dare you do this to me? He was yielding himself to the will of God, to God's purposes. That was his passion. And that is a tremendous humility. I would say, I would define this, uh, this first ambition really as deliberately and delightedly deferential. We defer to God. I'm not going to listen to the clamor of my own desires. I'm going to listen to the call of God's design. Secondly, not only do we live quietly, the second thing it says, you know, again, the ESV says here, mind your own affairs. I would again call the second point, the first one being humility, the second one integrity. Dependably and diligently dutiful. Now, this is, again, we got to be careful. Mind your own affairs. Or if somebody says to us, Mind your own business. What does that mean? Yeah, get out of my business. They're actually, when, they, when we use that figure of speech, mind your own affairs, mind your own business, we don't mean go be diligent and responsible with all the things that are entrusted to you. Now, we just mean leave me alone. Right? So, uh, so that's why I want to be careful with this. The scripture here, uh, some of the other translations here, the King James here actually says, ye study to be quiet, which is not even the idea. The word there is to do, to act, to perform, or, or the, to, to mind your own affairs is to do or practice and fulfill your duties and responsibilities. It's also in the present active, so it is a, it is a relentless pattern of attending to your own responsibilities. Now again, the, it, it, when it says, mind your own, what, is, what does the ESV say there? Mind your own affairs. There is no word there for affairs. There is no word there for business. It's simply, be sure to rightly attend to yourself. Now that's an important thing because we, we get the idea where the scripture, for example, says, judge not lest you be judged. And people love to quote that, don't they? As if that verse exists all on its own and should be put on a plaque somewhere. But there are following verses that say what? First, judge yourself. Then you will be able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Then you will be able to judge. We are not to worry about judging the world, but we are to judge among ourselves. But you first judge yourself. There are people. Now, I'm, I'm fearful to say this because probably your mind is going to start to think, yeah, I know that guy. But there are people who tend, and maybe, we, maybe one of us tends, and we've got to fight that tendency, to uh, be very skillful at seeing the deficiencies in others. Very able to see others' mistakes, others' failures, others' lacks. Right? 
some of us have that skill that it doesn't even take much effort. But then what happens is we, we start to look, where are the errors, where are the failures, where are the shortcomings? The scripture's saying, look, that's going to be there. They've got errors. You got errors. Here's where you got to focus your energy on dealing with your issues. You've got your issues where you're not pleasing God. You've got your issues where you, where you have the, these, these sins that continue to try to lay hold of you. You've got those, those issues of stumbling. Maybe it's a shortness of temper. Maybe it, it, it's a rashness of words. Maybe it's a struggle with the temptations of the flesh. Everyone has, you would like for me to say everybody has one particular issue. But that's not the way it usually works. All of us have a list of issues. And, and the scripture is saying it's just so easy for people to get caught up in, in judginess about others. Meddling in others' affairs, looking to make everybody else right. And not dealing with themselves. Do what you're supposed to do. Be about being what you're supposed to be. That's, a, that's the, the word be a lot of times in one sentence. But that's the idea of this. All right? So it's an, we be careful with this, the concept of mind your own affairs. So it is a dependably and diligently dutiful. I'm doing all of the things that I am supposed to do. I'm not meddlesome. I'm not quarrelsome. I'm not looking for issues. I'm not looking for a fight. The scriptures also call us and urge us to industry. It says this, work with your hands. That's, that's the next thing that it says in that passage. Work with, live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands. Does that mean if you have a desk job that you are failing this? No, thankfully, right? If your job is mostly studying and teaching and the most you do with your hand is gestures... Well, is that working with my hands? Does that count? Well, yes, it does. Not because of the gestures, but whatever is in your proximity, whatever is the work that you have been given, get after it. It says in Ecclesiastes, whatever work you have to do, do it with all your might. Whatever your hands find to do, do that with all your might. The bondservant in Scripture is told that as he does his work, for his earthly master, really his mindset is to be what? He does everything as unto the Lord. Because ultimately, maybe there's some temporal payment you get from that person, but the goal is to please him. And so there is this, there is this diligence to work and to work hard and to work faithfully. Now, we move on from, from that even into the next thought coming from the next verse. And it says this, so that. So you're going to be living in these ways. Your ambitions are going to be completely transformed so that it's supposed to have a result. It's supposed to have an influence. So you have altered ambitions because you are to be living lights. Walk properly towards Outsiders, you are 
a witness. First Thessalonians 2.10 said this, You are witness in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. We walk properly. It says this in Matthew. Um, in the same way, let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine. But what I love about Ephesians, when it brings that up, it says this. And this is so important. Ephesians 5, 8 says this. For at one time, now it, it's taken it a step further. Our normal language would be this. At one time you were in darkness and now you're in the light. No, 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 that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says here, at one time, you were darkness. That's not just where you were living. You were a part of the darkness. And now it's not that you're simply in the light, but because of Christ in us, we are light. You were darkness, Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you worked darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of the light. This is who you are, so be it, because you belong to him and to no other. And then the last thought there in that passage is this. Now, again, I think the ESV uh, renders it difficultly here. It says, be dependent on no one. New American Standard here is much more literal. It says this. And not be in any need. The, the dependent on no one. It really literally would be this. In need of no one and nothing. Because that word no one and nothing goes both ways. Work with your hands. Because here they were having some people who decided they were going to be super spiritual. So spiritual that they weren't even going to work. The end is at hand. So we're, we're going to sell everything. And we're, we're not going to work. And what will we do? Well, the church will take care of us. That's why when you get to Second Thessalonians, he says, if they will not work, they won't eat. No eating for them. We faced this kind of situation at one point. Uh, there was a, a, a dear family that was part of the church in India that um, a long period of time, husband and wife, no jobs. And the church lovingly sought to come alongside and help a family in need. But as one month goes into two and two goes into 12, and it doesn't appear that they're actively, earnestly looking for jobs. What does the church end up doing? Even at one point during that span of time, the lady came and said, you know, I, sometimes I think to myself, I don't know how we're going to make it. And then I think, oh, but we will because the church has to give us. Actually said that. Until finally we had to say, uh, yeah, it, generosity is coming to an end. We need to see some evidence that you are getting jobs, that you are out trying to. If the doors are closed, the doors are closed, but are you knocking? And what was strange is within a very uh, few weeks, both husband and wife had jobs. <laughs> Once things were cut off, and so... Uh, 
so there is still that, that kind of, the idea is, look, you want to be responsible. And more than that, the scriptures even urge, the reason why you want to work with your hands so that you can supply all of your needs, because then it will put you in a position where you can help others who are in need. Now, if at some point you find yourself in need, does that mean you're in violation of this passage? No, 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 no. This means a, a pattern of needfulness. Paul himself speaks of times that he was in need. He urges the believers to, to uh, and, and, and speaks positively of those who helped the saints in their need. All right? So that's going to happen. So whenever you see someone in need, it's not that we judge them, but if we have worked hard with the opportunities God has given us so that we're not, then we're in a position to help those who are in need for a season. And so that has to be the passion that is there. Things got far more extended and, and then abbreviated than I intended, but let's just review the things we've considered so that we can have time to move to the Lord's Supper. When we open up this passage, we see that the, this section of scriptures is giving us an idea of completely altered ambitions. These ambitions, first of all, promote a humility. That is where we are deliberately and delightedly deferential. Not for me, but for him. Not about me, but for his name and glory. Secondly, integrity. Dependably and diligently dutiful. I am going to do the things that God has set before me. I'm going to be, be responsible to live as he would have me live, to do as he would have me do. And that integrity overflows into industry. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be determined and devotedly disciplined. This is not a game. These altered ambitions serve the purpose that we are living lights in this world. We live in a way that outsiders can see it. And they will glorify God on the day of his visitation, as it says in 1 Peter. And then lastly, so that we, in the earthly sense, need nothing. Because what has happened? Our God has supplied all our needs. One of the ways, one of the ways that God enables us to meet our needs is what? He gives us strong arms, strong backs, so we can get a job and we can work hard. So you can't get over there and say, he didn't give it. What he gave you is what you could have used to get it. And so we see the, the powerful instruction in this passage for altered ambitions, living lights, so that we would need nothing and we would live for his pleasure and glory. Let's pray.